0: hello and welcome to the home of medicine podcast with me dr amy burbridge i'm a consultant in acute and general medicine in the uk and today i am joined by a fantastic new guest this is sam from the pre paces podcast welcome sam
1: thank you so much amy for having me on on your podcast. As you know, I'm a huge fan of the Home of Medicine, so it's a real honour and a privilege to be on with you.
0: Honestly, the, the pleasure's all mine because it was really lovely to be on the pre podcast um, a few weeks ago. So um, I'm really looking forward to this and I'm going to be in the hot seat and you are going to present a case to me. So it's over to you.
1: Yeah, fantastic. So uh, for any listeners who haven't listened to my podcast or know what stage of training i'm in so i'm a i'm a cardiology registrar currently in st5 but this case is coming from uh, a case which i've had within the last couple of years of of my training and i thought there was some valuable learning out of it so here we go so to set the scene this is a, a night shift in a small district general hospital and i was the medical reg on call and it's a relatively small team And it was in the winter. There was myself as the reg who's covering the wards and the medical take. And then I've got two clerking SHOs and one F1 who's covering the wards. So it's a relatively small team. And I'd been handed over a few patients to see from the day team. And I'd seen a couple of them. And it was probably around 11, between sort of 11 and midnight and I'd seen one of my ward reviews and was heading back to, uh, to see how the take list was getting on. And as I'm going back to see how the take uh, list is going, um, I get a call or a bleep and I call, call them back. And it's the ED senior clinician. Uh, truthfully, I couldn't remember if it's a registrar or a consultant, but either way, it's, it's, an, it's, an, it's a senior emergency doctor who answered the phone and they sounded panicked. They sounded serious on the phone. And that's always a concern for me, as I'm sure it is for you as well. And they said, I need you to come urgently. I think this lady has got a PE. She's using an 11, and I think we need to thrombolize her. And so on receiving a phone call like that, someone who's really concerned at the end of the phone, I wanted to just take a first pause because we haven't got any history, but it's a skill which I think is important as the medical reg or anyone who's answering a telephone call from someone who might find themselves in an emergency type situation. How do you react to that type of phone call? And I guess, Amy, what do you do to best prepare yourself for seeing the patient? Would you ask for more information over the phone? Or would you just drop everything and just go straight to the department?
0: Okay, so what's really interesting, as you are telling me this story, I can feel my own heart rate starting to increase a little bit. And I have, completely been in this situation and I've completely just put myself in your shoes and gone wow okay this is intense and I get that panicky anxious feeling that I guess lasts a little bit which is good because you want that adrenaline rush but then I start to think okay Amy get a grip you need to be able to see this patient so I've got a senior clinician on the phone to me who you said sounds very panicky with a news, which is um, an early warning score of 11. So that would look at blood pressure, heart rate, temperature, oxygen saturations and GCS. We want it to be about zero. So 11 is pretty high, very high. So if I'm being honest, I would be like, okay, I'm on my way. I wouldn't ask any further questions. I would put the phone down and I would go straight there. What I might do, actually, is I might say to them, if you're very concerned, is it worth putting out an alert call? Different hospitals have different types. There might be a medical alert. It might be a peri-arrest call, but there'll be something that you may want to activate to get more people on site. So that is what I do to start off with.
1: Yeah. So I completely agree. And one thing which... uh I guess, which I think is particularly important for those who are stepping up who might find themselves in this similar type of situation is um, you have a window of thinking time when you're walking to these uh, situations, these these events or these uh, patients who you get called about. So anyway, Amy, I did exactly what, what you did. When you get a phone call like that from someone who you know is in a senior position, even if I had another sick patient to see, they are probably not as sick as this person who has been seen by a senior emergency medicine doctor. So I did basically say, don't don't think about anything else. I'm on my way. And I arrived to the resuscitation department in ED and they signpost me to, I say they, this is the nursing staff, because when I arrived, the Person, I can't find the person who's called me when I get to the recess department, but there is an 82-year-old lady who is laid on the trolley and she looks poorly. She's pale. She's got a non-rebreathe mask and looks breathless and looks in pain as well. She is attached to a cardiac monitor and that is showing, helpfully, the most recent up-to-date set of OBs. And so I go in and sh- so I'm assuming that she's on 15 liters if she's on a non-rebreed mask, but her oxygen saturations are 94% on 15 liters. She's got a respiratory rate of 30. Her heart rate is 90 and her blood pressure is 105 over 70. And like I said, I couldn't find the person who has spoken to me on the phone, the senior ED clinician, but the nurse tells me that the patient has been too breathless to speak at length, not enough to give a full history that her sons are on their way in, and uh, the nursing staff have taken some bloods. The bloods aren't back, but they do have a VBG and they have an ECG. And like I said, I couldn't find the doctor that rang me. The nurses said the department was really busy, so they had to leave again. And so, on initial assessment, Amy, what would your thoughts be as the medical consultant on call, as I was the medical reg on call, when you're faced with this patient in the context of the handover you've got from the senior, and now with a bit more information? Uh, with with the obs and the fact you've got the patient in front of you
0: okay so actually this isn't something that happens too infrequently so in the last couple of weeks i have had a couple of situations similar to this not necessarily the same age or gender but definitely a patient in resource or on the ward who's very unwell so i always go back to basics and i'm sure i people get fed up on me at work i'm like just go back to basics go do an a to e and i'll you know again Go and approach the patient, look at her, get close. Um, the smell around the bed sometimes helps. I always tell people to smell. I'm like, sometimes you can smell ketones or you can just smell that feeling of being unwell. It's something that's there that's difficult to describe, but you just know it. I think you might come with experience, but it's definitely, you know, you can smell something that's wrong. Um, I do an airway assessment. So is she speaking to me? Is that airway patent? Has she got an airway adjunct in? Does she need an airway adjunct? going back to respirate, oxygen saturations, pulse, blood pressure, temperature, capillary blood glucose, GCS. And then i examine her as well. So you were told that this lady, they think it's a PE, but I wouldn't want to assume that. And I'd want to make my own decision. So I'd want to take a history. If I could try and gain some information and do an examination. So particularly focusing on the what the pulse feels like. Is it thready? Is it weak? Is it strong? Is it bounding? Feel the, you know, check the blood pressure again, look at the face, you know, look at the color of the patient. Is there any cyanosis? Listen to the heart, listen to the chest. Is there anything I can hear without respirating those sats? Is there any signs of cardiac failure? Is there any pneumonia? Is there a pneumothorax? You know, there's lots of things that could be going on here. And I would have a look at the legs. Is there any edema, any signs of a DVT? They'd mentioned a PE, so that's something I'd think about. Look at the abdomen. Have a feel of the abdomen. Is there any signs of an or heparin injections from a recent surgery that she's had? Potentially, I would try and speak to a nurse. Nurses are fonts of information and resource. Has she been like this all along? Has she deteriorated? Has there been any improvement? What treatment has she had so far? Have we done anything for her? And if I can't get much from the patient, what are the notes? you know, what has the other clinician documented? Is there any family? Try and get collateral history. Aware that I need to do this very quickly. Um, And I may try and get a little bit of backup for myself. So maybe is there anybody else in the medical team who can look at her previous history, anything online, maybe look at the chest x-rays, bloods to help me formulate uh, a diagnosis and a management plan. But in this instance, I think, like you're saying, she's already got the oxygen on, you know, think about fluids if she needs it and go down that route
1: yeah absolutely and that's a lot of the same stuff that i was that i was thinking at the time and we see these patients quite often where we actually are not faced with someone who's able to give a full history and we have to make an assessment based on what we can see or the observations in front of us or other objective measures rather than the story but the one thing which stuck with me as you said is uh is the handover I got was, I think she's got a PE and we need to thrombolyze her. And that was the, the thing which stuck in my head when I was making my journey down there. And I was thinking, well, the thrombolysis criteria for a PE are, they have to be hemodynamically unstable. And so with this lady, I thought with a heart rate of 90 and a blood pressure of 105 over 70, I even if this, this could be a PE, but it could be all the things that you mentioned, but either way, I'm not going to be reaching for my alteplase right now. So that was the first thing in my head that was thinking, like, okay, we can all just relax a little bit because she's not peri-arrest. She, is, she looks sick and she needs an assessment and she needs to be in hospital, but we're not in a peri-arrest situation was the first thought. Um, so absolutely, as you said, I I was... The other thing which just uh, just going to touch on is the fact that the emergency physician wasn't there. And in my head, I thought, well, you know, they are busy. They are busy people. I know they are. Especially in a smaller department like the one I was in, but also, I thought if they're comfortable enough to leave a patient like that, either there must be a patient equally sick, or they actually must have looked at the obs and thought, "Well, okay, I'm on my way," and I'm actually not that concerned. So that was in my mind as well. So I'm just about to start my A to E assessment, and her sons arrive, which was incredible timing. But I hadn't, I hadn't yet examined her. But this gentleman arrived, and he arrived at the at the bed space in v and asked what had been going on and I was able to get a bit of history from him before I was able to assess the patient and I thought she's stable enough for now let's get a bit of story so the history is that she had had a knee replacement eight weeks ago and had been supposedly making good progress with her recovery at home and had been intermittently mobile at home since the operation but you know she is 82 she's had an orthopedic operation and yeah, you know, she was still going through her recovery. Um, one thing which he had noticed is that she had had a lot of post-operative vomiting at home and had been discharged with some antiemetics, but the GP had had to prescribe some more since she'd been at home. But that had actually settled more recently and she'd been off the antiemetics for the last about seven to 10 days. She'd been a bit washed out and lethargic, but otherwise would make a good recovery. And then the events immediately before, which had brought her to hospital, was that she uh, had been more breathless through the course of the previous day, progressing to the point where she was quite breathless at rest in the evening and then had had some central slash right-sided chest pain and then, quote-unquote, collapsed at home while sitting in a chair and they had phoned an ambulance and they'd followed the ambulance to the emergency department. Apparently according to the sun she'd come around quite quickly after the episode but was unwell and looking at the paramedic sheet that was there she had been hypoxic uh, when she'd arrived with sats in the sort of mid 80s hence the non-rebreathe oxygen mask in in terms of a past medical history for someone who's 82 she was pretty good she had some arthritis which is the reason she'd had her operation and she had hypothyroidism and some diverticular disease so You know, not reams and reams of comorbidities. So you can assume sort of a reasonably, a well lady for eighty-two years of age, and she was just on some levothyroxine for her hypothyroidism. And as I said, socially she functionally wasn't that bad. She'd been walking reasonable distances of up to about a mile before her arthritis had got so bad, and she'd never smoked, and she'd never, and you know, she hadn't drunk alcohol to excess. So, Amy, what do you think of that history now we've got a bit more of a collateral history from her son? Is there any more information uh, you would like? Or Was there anything else you think we ought to uh, consider in this case?
0: OK, so on the face of it, it seems very much this is a PE because she's had a total knee replacement eight weeks ago. She's been, as you say, intermittently mobile, lethargic, breathless. Collapsed, had an had a sort of a period of unconsciousness, preceded by some chest pain, and was hypoxic. So, yeah, it could be a PE, but it could also not be a PE. And I think the problem we've got here is, is again, it's one of those biases which is there for a reason. Is that it must be PE? She's had an E replacement. She's high risk of a DVT. They're high risk of a PE. But actually, she's also high risk for. Any other condition that she could potentially have? So, is this acute coronary syndrome potentially? I don't know. It could be. Is this a spontaneous pneumothorax? Okay, that's stretching it, but isn't it really? Highly um, <laughs> likely. Um, chest pain, collapse. Could it be an aortic dissection? Again, could be. Might be. I'm not sure. I mean, I think unless I had further confirmatory tests that tells me this is definitely pe and it definitely isn't acute coronary syndrome it definitely isn't a pneumothorax a pneumonia sepsis definitely isn't an aortic um, aneurysm or dissection sorry um i think i'd struggle to thrombolize this case, okay, this individual actually i um so what would i like to do next you've got a good history which is fantastic you've done an A2E assessment obviously it's important to keep doing the repeating A2E assessment throughout that's really yeah. um, important to do
1: although, although what I will say Emmy is I'll give you the A2E now because we've uh because okay. I, although I hadn't done it I was just about to do it when we got the history from the uh, okay. from the son so I can give you the examination findings which Uh, Yes,
0: please.
1: which might help. So in terms of A to E, so she's able to speak, but only in short sentences. And she's, as the nurse had said, she's not able to give a full history. And as I'm listening to her, as I'm listening to her chest, so she's obviously on the oxygen, she's got a high respiratory rate. But as I'm listening to her chest, she's actually got um, absent breath sounds on, on one side of her chest. And she's got good clear air entry on the left side of her chest. Her heart rate was slightly tachycardic, just over 100, about 110. She had a good radial pulse. She was warm peripherally, and her blood pressure had been fluctuating between about 100 to 110 systolic over about 60 to 70 diastolic. And she was alert. She was responsive. They'd done a a blood glucose, which was 5.9, and she was afebrile. Her abdomen was soft. Her her the wound from her orthopedic operation looked okay. There wasn't any obvious ooze or inflammation around that, so I was quite happy. Um, but that's where we that's where we found ourselves. So, any thoughts now at this point? Now we've got a bit more information.
0: Okay, so absent breath sounds unilaterally normally points to a pneumothorax, which I jokingly mentioned earlier on. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, thinking, I mean, it's always up there in a differential of somebody's acutely unwell. But I. But actually, this could be a pneumothorax, potentially, with absent breath sounds. She may have had an intubation she, um, when she had a knee replacement. Although, to be fair, it's eight weeks after that. So I doubt if there would be any link there, it would be highly unlikely, to be honest. So I guess the next thing to do, Oh, I'm thinking. So w- I would want to have a look. He said trachea deviated. So am I dealing with a tension pneumothorax? I'd do some old school examination. So I'd look at her, I'd look at her trachea. I'd see if it was deviated and I would percuss. I love a percussion. You know, is she hyper-resonant? You know, is this some, you know, is this actually a pneumothorax that I need to treat ASAP? You know, do I need to decompress this pneumothorax? Now, I think it's one of these medical myths. I don't know whether it was what, Me and Ben were talking previously about medical myths and um, it was that if it's a tension pneumothorax, you should never see it on a chest x-ray because you should never get to the point of a chest x-ray before you've decompressed the patient. But I don't think I'd ever feel really confident enough to do it. So I would like to do a chest x-ray, please. And I would also like to do a, uh, you've done a VBG, haven't we? and I'd like to do some blood tests as well. So full blood count, use and ease, you know, the the routine and clotting as well. You know, if I'm going to be doing some procedure, I want to know what her prothrombin time is. Has she been on Clexane? You no, know, post-operatively. So that's where I'm at at the moment.
1: OK, so absolutely fine. I So I did exactly what you said. I requested the chest X-ray as an urgent portable. And while we were waiting for that to happen, some of the blood tests had come back. So she had a a white cell count of 10.3. She had neutrophils of 9.7, lymphocytes of 0.4, hemoglobin of one zero eight, which was uh, stable for her. And she had a CRP of 124. Renal function was okay, GFR of 87. And she had a troponin of eight, where the limit in, in uh, in the institution was, I think, less than 14. She'd also had a clotting done, which had shown an INR of 1.1, and someone had sent off a D-dimer.
0: No, I knew you were going to say that. Okay.
1: And the D-dimer came back at 7.4, where the uh, reference range was less than 0.
0: 0.5. She's so, a post-op as well, isn't she? So difficult to interpret, really.
1: It is difficult to interpret. And that, I think, went in my category or went in my bucket that ben mentioned so often which is i wouldn't have done it so i'm going to ignore it
0: yeah (laughs) absolutely yeah
1: and the vbg was also available which was pretty pretty normal a ph of 7.42 pco2 of 5.9 um the oxygen was 11.7 and that was on the 15 liters Uh, she had a a normal glucose 5.9 and her lactate was 1.9 and you, you said you wanted a chest x-ray as well. So it's very difficult to communicate an image through the podcasting medium, Amy. So I'm going to go back and do one thing, which you mentioned that you would do some old school examination. I did go and feel her for her trachea. And at least my teaching is that tracheal deviation in the case of a pneumothorax is a late sign. That was always my teaching and that if you've got a deviated trachea, there's a lot of air in one side of the chest or it's deviated for another reason and it's not a pneumothorax. And she had a deviated trachea, which was going away from the side of the chest, which had the absent breath sounds. So some pieces of the puzzle are starting to sort of fit together now. And I'm, as the sole medical reg on overnight, not feeling really 100% happy about how things are going. (laughs) So we got we got our urgent chest X-ray, and do you want me to, I can read you the report? Yes, please. There is a large right-sided pneumothorax with associated partial lung collapse. There's deviation of the trachea and the heart to the left in keeping with attention tension pneumothorax. Left pleural effusion noted. Wow. And what I should say as well, Amy, is that at least for me, and this is where it gets slightly difficult to explain the imaging over a podcast, but it it wasn't quite as you see these very typical Mm. big tension pneumothoraces. If you were to sort of Google and Google image attention, you see these big dark areas of lung field. It wasn't quite like that, but it looked convincing enough to me. And there certainly were no lung markings beyond a lung edge, which was visible on the film and there was tracheal shift and mediastinal shift. So here is where my heart was very firmly in my mouth. I had maybe done a chest drain once before under the supervision of a respiratory registrar when I was an SHO. And then COVID happened and I hadn't done one since. It had probably been near to about three years since I'd seen a chest drain kit. And something I felt... Uh, This was something I felt a lot of apprehension over because the med reg bleep is a busy bleep. I was lucky enough on this evening not to have had another bleep to my number and getting gowned up in a sterile field to perform a procedure out of hours effectively takes you out of action for the next half an hour, up to an hour to gather the kit, set up the patient positioning and then perform it. And then there's the documentation afterwards and the aftermath of the procedure. And speaking to my respiratory colleagues, because this had been something I had been anxious about in the past, their mantra was, don't mess with the pleura overnight if you can help it. But by this time, it was probably about half midnight or around that sort of time. And I don't feel like I'm in a position where this could be put off for any longer. So, Amy, what would you do at this this point in the story?
0: Um, Probably similar to what you (laughs) did. Um, so, I think over the la- over time, certainly chest strains being inserted by non respiratory physicians has reduced. And certainly, I've worked in lots of different places where chest strains are only really inserted by the respiratory team because of complications that have arisen from chest strains being inserted by people who don't do them frequently enough. So, however, I. I think that, I mean, you could decompress, you could use a large bore needle in the second intercostal space in the midclavicular line. And that will help give you some time potentially. If, however, if you are feeling not confident to do that chest strain, you could call, give a more harm than not. So I would speak to the ED physician, the ED consultant, and ask if they would be able to help. Maybe somebody in IT you can help. Maybe you've got, as a medical registrar, could you call your medical consultant? It was on call overnight to ask for some help. There may be some consultants who are confident to do chest strains. So as an acute physician, I did train in sort of thoracic ultrasound and did lots of chest strains. So, however, I, I probably haven't done one for a little while either. So um, there would be some, you know, anxiety from me as well, to be fair. So in your shoes, I would ask for help. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't sort of worry about it too much in A&E. You know, I'd get help from ED, ITU, call the medical consultant who's on overnight and decompress. But I might yeah. be wrong.
1: Well, I think every all of those are, are, are viable options. And, and I probably thought of most of them while my mind was going a thousand miles an hour at this time of the morning. And so what I did do was I thought, exactly the same as you is that I, so I'm not trained in thoracic ultrasound, but I am trained in echo and I know what structures look like in an echocardiogram and how different is it really? So I grabbed the ultrasound probe and had a look at at the affected side of the chest, the right side of the chest. And I had a look and I could see lung edge on the ultrasound with a huge margin of air. And I just thought, well, it's a big loss of air. She's relatively stable. You know, her blood pressure hasn't dropped below a hundred. And I thought, why don't we go in the safe triangle and why do we decompress it? And so I did speak to the emergency uh, physician. They, they weren't uh, reluctant to help, but they said, "Well, I've got a whole department to run, and I'm and the same principle applies. They have to run a whole emergency department. Meanwhile, I have two capable SHOs." And so what I did do was hand my bleep to one of the SHOs and say, if there's another emergency, come and get me, but can you just hold this so I'm not distracted while I'm doing this because this is urgent? And then I also asked for the help of the resus nurses to gather the kits. And they were very helpful with that. And I also asked for outreach, the critical care outreach nurses to come and help as well. And the the outreach nurses and the resource nurses were extremely helpful. and. Long story short, we managed to get the patient into an optimal position. And just before we started, I spoke to the family and explained what we were doing, explained what the chest x-ray had found, and that we were going to put a drain into the chest. And they may see it occasionally bubbling or, or swinging, as the chest drains do. And uh, this is what they were going to expect. But it would take about 15, 20 minutes. And did they want to just take a seat outside the cubicle while I did that? So with the help of the outreach nurses and with the uh, resus nurses there i conquered my fears and managed to cite the chest drain with with a bit of ultrasound guidance but more or less just with the help of the of the uh, team the resus nurse team and the outreach team so the really reassuring bit was there was the hiss of air that was coming from the pleura when you just dissected down with a blade and that's the bit which you think oh, I only hear about this in stories from uh, other people, but actually it happens in real life. So that was really gratifying. And I just felt that even though this was a practical procedure, which I had only done under supervision before, I was able to utilize skills elsewhere, my echo skills and other, you know, Seldinger techniques of, for example, doing an angiogram are still sort of applicable it's still putting a wire into a space you're still aspirating back to you know make sure you're not in a in a blood vessel or what have you so anyway long story short we managed to sight the drain and managed to secure it sutured it into place and she got better she felt much less breathless her oxygen requirement went down um she was she was still tachypneic but she uh, but she was markedly less hypoxic and we managed to titrate her oxygen down a bit so as we're uh, we're cleaning up, and the resource nurses are really helpful, they've got rid of a lot of the uh, got rid of a lot of the kit and the patients a lot say a lot. She was she was less poorly than when I'd found her. which is always a good uh, always a good spot to be in. And so I uh, disappeared off to grab my bleep back off the SHO who'd kindly been holding it for me, and I uh, and then I returned, and this is the part of the story where things took a left turn. And I looked in the, uh, I looked in the cubicle and the drain had started draining this dark brown fluid. It was totally unexpected. The family were obviously concerned, but as I said, her obs had stabilized. She became less tachycardic. Her heart rate was 90. Her blood pressure was 110 over 70. She looked and felt better. Her air entry was still a little quiet, but generally better. Uh, generally better right-sided air entry. So Amy, what would you do in that situation? You think you've decompressed a pneumothorax, but you've come back and suddenly there is brown fluid in the chest strain.
0: Okay, so it sounds like you did decompress a pneumothorax. However, what we need to identify, is this a complication of the procedure that you've just performed or is it another lung pathology that we are treating potentially? Sounds like you definitely were in the lung because you had the the air, the decompression, and you said you've got this dark brown fluid. How much fluid was there?
1: So uh, it's difficult to say because there's there's an underwater seal, isn't there? Oh yeah.
0: Uh, of and so
1: it's one of those things where you know you put a you put a few drops of blood into a wet sink and it looks a lot worse than it is. Yes, but it yeah. was it was enough for me to say that the brownness it wasn't dilute in the underwater seal. It was pretty brown. It it Which looked like think... go on.
0: I was just gonna say if it's brown, that's telling me that it's not new blood. Is it is it old blood? Maybe I
1: it um... wasn't it wasn't like a ready brown. It was like a it was almost like a pine wood sort of brown. Almost almost and this is not really a clue, but it's it looked like a feculent brown.
0: I did. I was gonna say thinking was it feces but or was it infection or was it i mean you have to get another chest x-ray straight away that's the most important thing isn't it to identify is the drain in the right place and you know is the drain still bubbling you know so is there still air going through that drain but that that chest x-ray is really important isn't it and if it is feculent in color you said potentially i then obviously want to feel the abdomen was the abdomen soft and non-tender that would be where i'd be going next
1: yeah, so absolutely right. And I got another chest x-ray to see how how the post-drain appearances were. And the repeat chest x-ray showed some partial re-expansion of the lung with the drain in situ at the lung base, at the lung base rather than at the apex, as you might, you might hope that the drain goes up to drain the air, but the drain is sort of down in the lung base. And it's sutured in place now. My approach to this was, Well, the patient is feeling better. Her symptoms are better. Yes, that's an unexpected finding. But I think messing around with the pleura any more than I have already may well cause more problems than I'm fixing. And actually, there are cleverer people than me, i.e. respiratory consultants who will be able to adjust the drain in the light of day with a clear head and more sleep than me. So I actually left it as it was. With the addition that the drain was was sutured in place already, and I didn't want to move it from where it was, because she clinically improved.
0: I mean, that sounds like a very sensible approach. And you said one line actually was that because she was hemodynamically stable, you didn't want to mess around with the pleura anymore. And I think that's a really sensible approach that you took because, again, if you started messing around with the drain or taking it out, then you don't know what might happen. And because she was stable, she was improving. The drain was bubbling. That sounds like
1: you did the right thing. Well, I I hoped so. But what I did make sure was that she went only to a respiratory ward. I wouldn't accept her going to an AMU. And I said, let's just get her straight up to the respiratory ward. They're very well-versed with dealing with drains. So let's send her right there and let's see how she is in the morning. And so I was happy with that and explained to the family and I explained to them that it was an unexpected finding and that I didn't really know what was going on. Which I think you've alluded to on the show uh, many times before is that it's fine to say you don't know what's going on, but that she had improved. I was happy with how things were, but they will review things in the morning. And so, just to that was sort of the end of my time with her because she was stable. I checked on her a couple of times through the night, and it didn't. uh, The drain didn't drain too much more, but it stayed the same sort of color of the the of the fluid. And so I left it and finished my shift and then went home. And a couple of the things which I reflected on afterwards was that I was asked to see her a couple more times on my night shifts the following days because I'm a medical reg covering the wards and the take. And she was handed over by the day team saying, oh, this is a lady who had a chest drain put in uh night before last or whenever it was. And it's been moved several times and the pneumothorax is still there. They've tried to, readjust the drain they've replaced the drain several times by rewiring the initial tract and replacing it with a different tube maybe it was a block tube and that was why and the real issue was that they were removing or the drain had been adjusted by people who in my opinion are trained to you know know what they're talking about when it comes to chest drains but the concern for me was that the pneumothorax actually wasn't getting any better but also the same caveat applies of I'm not going to mess with that overnight, providing the patient is stable. <laughs> so any any thoughts now, Amy? I've, I've sort of moved us out of the acute mm. scenario mm-hmm. and into a more sort of uh, broad brushstrokes, taking a step back at the situation now that she's sort of stable on the ward with other, mm. with other physicians sort of taking over her care in the longer term.
0: So she's... Got a pneumothorax that seems to be resistant to treatment with a uh, the seldinger chest strain so is there another pathology within the lung that is either causing the pneumothorax or preventing the pneumothorax from being treated properly i was just thinking about the brown tissue was that was that infarcted necrotic tissue you know some liquid from that that was my thought process But what I want to do is I probably want to do a CT scan of the thorax to try and get a more detailed look within the lungs. And I've seen this before in in a large pneumothorax that was difficult to resolve and it was due to an underlying malignancy. So I would want to identify if there was a malignancy within that lung that potentially is contributing to the fact that this pneumothorax is difficult to treat so but again you're in the middle of the night you know it's really difficult isn't it and i think that your priority at that point is to make sure she's hemodynamically stable and she's safe and to make the suggestions that consider ct scan or maybe request it to be done the next day unless you think it needs to be done overnight unlikely though to get done and to consider you know is there an is there dual pathology so even you know have we been completely and utterly biased by this total knee replacement. Has that stopped us thinking about any other diagnosis? So actually, take the knee replacement completely out of this equation. Let's forget that ever happens, although you shouldn't do that, but let's try and not bias our decision-making process and just start from the beginning. She's an, she's an 82-year-old female, with no significant past medical history of note, sudden onset of a pneumothorax, difficult to treat. Is there malignancy there? That would be what I would be thinking, but again, I sometimes go off on tangents, so I might be wrong.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing which I, um, which we did mention earlier, but we sort of uh, brushed over a little bit, was she had a and I didn't mention this, but she had a high white cell count, and she also had or mildly high white cell count, and she also had a high CRP, which I think was a hundred or just over a hundred or so, one hundred and twenty. And I had given her some antibiotics because I thought, well, the CRP is not coming from nowhere and she's got a a mild, mildly up white cell count. So let's go with uh, some antibiotics as well. And over the course of several days and at the end of the night shifts, I looked and the CRP had not been settling despite the antibiotics. And eventually the day team did exactly as you suggested, Amy, and they did a full-body CT, CT, chest, abdomen, pelvis. And it proved to be the most important diagnostic imaging. And I can give you the sort of highlights or summary of the report. Suspicious circumferential mural thickening along the lower third of the esophagus, likely to represent a primary malignancy. Heterogeneous enhancing oval rounded lesions in the bilateral gluteal muscles suggestive of metastasis. And so for me, this was a relative curveball because I thought where on earth would we have picked up this malignancy from anywhere else? She had been well enough to undergo an orthopedic operation. So the anesthetists must have thought, well, you know, she's a robust 82-year-old lady and she wasn't coquetic. She wasn't, you know... Uh, malnourished or she didn't look underweight for example and so this was, su- was surprising to me but the report was there for for me to see and when it came to it um the discussion which i ended up having with her consultant was that she probably had uh, perforated her esophagus which had led to her pneumothorax and then led to reflux of food contents from her stomach while she was vomiting into her pleura. And that was the bit where I suddenly the penny dropped and I thought, that's where the brown fluid has come from.
0: Mm. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And then everything just sort of seemed to sadly click together that this woman had a, an esophageal cancer. Gosh.
0: Yes. And so many things to reflect on and learn from on that like I'm a bit speechless (laughs) which never happens
1: Mm. and it was you know it was it was as as big a shock to me when I saw the CT report but I did think at one point there's there's something going on here particularly when I went back and I said I, I looked at the fact that they tried to readjust the drain and I thought this this is not the usual pattern of how pneumothoraces work from my limited knowledge of managing pneumothoraces this is not the typical pattern of treatment and so she stayed in hospital for a couple of weeks I think after that and unfortunately she did pass away in hospital but I thought it was a interesting case because there were there were so many learning points for me not only taking the opportunity and responsibility of performing an out of hours Drain for someone who was acutely unwell with what was a tension pneumothorax, but then also managing the uncertainty of I'm not sure that that was meant to drain brown fluid, and what else have I, you know, what what could I have considered earlier on in the in the disease course to make me think that or tip me off that that might have been the answer? But it's a tricky case.
0: It's it's you know I think it's it highlights the brilliance of medicine clinical physical examination you know history of medicine but it also shows the complexity of the human body and how coming to hospital with shortness of breath can actually lead to a devastating diagnosis and that's something that we see frequently and is a really difficult part of, of our jobs actually is dealing with that uncertainty but also dealing with those really devastating diagnoses on a day-to-day basis and having to relay that information to families and patients is really difficult. I, I mean, massive thank you for showing that case, because I think anybody who listens to that case will take something away from that, whether it be from the clinical perspective and how you handled it in research and, you know, from the going back to acute medicine A to E approach to then going to the chest strain, and the uncertainty and the brown fluid, which we we'll probably never know exactly what it was. And then, you know, key things that I've I've wrapped do- down here as well is that you recognize that it was important not to be distracted when you were doing the drain, that you asked for help, you got outreach. And then one thing that you said is you overcome your own fear of doing that chest drain. And I think we all have our fears within medicine. My particular fear is neurology. I see a neurology case and I panic because I, it's so complicated and I just look at it and I pick up the notes. And I'm like, I don't think I could deal with that. I'm sure somebody else more clever than me can deal with that. So that's my particular fear. And I do pick them up and I do see patients with neurological symptoms because I know I have to, but it's a big fear of mine. And I think, you know, when you you put it all together, it's just a very interesting case. So thank you so much for sharing that. What I would like to ask you, I guess, is what are your three takeaway points for people who are listening to this? What
1: would you like them to take away with them? So I think the the first takeaway I think which is most important is is the one that you just mentioned, which is about confronting fears in a way. But mm. the one thing to say is that it's not like I wasn't trained in doing chest strains. I had done them before, but there was there was a risk of de-skilling. And so what maybe reassured me about that situation was using skills which I had learned elsewhere almost to reassure myself and said oh well I can't do thoracic ultrasound but I can echo and I know what body structures look like under ultrasound and what I would reflect back to your listeners as well is that after having done this having been so anxious about approaching something like that particularly a chest drain out of hours having done it now I'm not scared of it anymore because I've done it Mm. and I know that if I were to approach that same situation again that I would be able to to manage it and so there's there is value in going through these stressful events at the time but there's value later on when you when you think well actually i got through it and the patient after the procedure was safe and that was the that was the first thing for me the second thing was actually going right back to the very start was speaking to someone on the phone who is distressed panicked anxious about their patients and I had another instance like this quite recently, but uh, from a cardiological perspective, someone rang me on the phone and was saying, we've got a situation here with your patient. And the first thing which I think I've taken away or, or learned from this experience and that one was to just start the sentence with, I'm coming right now before you say anything else. If you need further information, ask it. But that's what they want to hear first is, I'm coming right now, but by the way, who else have you spoken to or by the way, can you get some obspot before I get there something of that nature So reassuring people on the phone if you have time to do that or just saying, yep, I'm coming straight away And then I think the last the last takeaway is even in the middle of the night in a small district general hospital, there are people around to help you with these types of situations, procedures, difficult cases, and they can be found from all the sources we've mentioned the ED team, ITU team, outreach nurses, well-trained ward nurses, well-trained recess nurses, and there are sources of help, even when you think there are none. And don't be afraid to pick up the phone and speak to the people who you think might be able to help you in, in a difficult situation. And even if most of the time, if I approach a difficult or tricky case out of hours, I just do a sense check with, often it's the ICU registrar, and I say this person, this person isn't sick, and they don't need intensive care. But I just want to sense check my plan with you. Is there anything you think I'm immediately missing? And even just talking through your initial plan or uh, your ideas can prompt extra help from them. So I think those are my three takeaways for the for the listeners today, Amy.
0: Thank you so much. I mean, I've probably got about two thousand takeaway points that I'm going to work and learn. And I actually wrote, because I, I write notes when I record these podcasts. I've got seven pages of notes. <laughs> so, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a lot of it scribble, but, you know, I often will read back and reflect on it. So a massive thank you, Sam. And if you haven't listened to Sam's podcast, the pre-PACES podcast, please take a listen because it's fantastic. Not just for those who are doing PACES, but for any anybody in medicine and medical students will also find it really helpful. So a massive thank you, Sam. It's been an absolute pleasure and a joy to have you on today's podcast. It's definitely challenged me anyway. Um, and got me thinking so thank you very much and i'd like to thank everybody who's out there who's continuing to listen please rate and review the podcast that would be fantastic and we'll be back soon thanks for listening bye bye you've been listening to the home of medicine podcast a podcast brought to you by the eFim academy in association with the european federation of internal medicine a leading organization in internal medicine thanks for listening